0: A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Teaching History Her Way podcast. I am your host, Sherilyn Amendola, and I am so excited that you are here tonight. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you, this is another episode that you're listening to beyond your first, welcome back. I am always grateful when you come and listen to uh, this podcast weekly. Um, tonight, I am welcoming Ed Donnellan. He is going to tell us about his project with that he did with his students about discovering Gonzaga's ties to slavery. Um, so Ed Donnellan is a high school history teacher at Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C. Welcome.
1: Well, it's great to be with you, Cheryl Ann. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited and I'm sure all of our listeners are really excited to hear about your project. It It's such a great way to tie in American history, local history, history that's hidden kind of on purpose. Um, So before we get into your project, though, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself as a teacher?
1: Sure. I'm an American history teacher at Gonzaga High School, which is a a Jesuit high school located on North Capitol Street in Washington, D.C. We're about six blocks from the Capitol. Right now, there's troops in front of our school, so it's a very surreal experience uh, right now to be To be at school, and we're we're not in school this week, particularly with the inauguration tomorrow. Um, And the school goes back to eighteen twenty one, so this is the beginning of the school's two hundred year anniversary. Um, And I've been at the school for eight years, and uh, I was part of this extraordinary group of young people that discovered the school school's historical ties to slavery.
0: I wanted to note for our audience that we are recording this podcast on January 19th. So it is the day before Inauguration Day and approximately, actually, it's exactly two weeks after the siege on the Capitol by terrorists. So Gonzaga is in a prime location for all kinds of scary American history right now. Um, All right. So would you mind telling us a little bit about, actually tell us a lot about the project and the students' findings. So overarching theme of the project, what did you have them do? How did it start? Just give us the whole thing.
1: Oh, great. So like a lot of people, um, about five years ago, I read an article in the New York Times discussing the sale of 272 enslaved persons by Georgetown University um, to rescue the school from financial crisis. Uh, I had not heard about that. As long as I'd been teaching uh, and long as I'd been in a Jesuit high school, that story was new to me, and I shared it with my classes, and I reached out to a professor who was featured in the article who had brought this research to light. His name was Adam Rothman, and he generously agreed to come and speak to my classes, and he spoke in the auditorium to about 300 people, and he showed us the documentary evidence that he had, the archival evidence, it was an extraordinary presentation. During the Q&A, one of my students asked a question to him, and it's one of those moments where you're most proud as a teacher. This young man stood up and asked Professor Rothman, do you know of any historical ties between Gonzaga and slavery? Professor Rothman said he didn't know, he hadn't looked at it, but he challenged the student and other Gonzaga students to come to the Georgetown Slavery Archives located at Georgetown University to begin our own exploration into our school's history, and that—that's the genesis of our research. Uh, we took them up on the offer. Uh, a group of students volunteered to do it. We did it in the summertime, and I was really fortunate to find five young men who were deeply committed to this pro- uh, to, to this process uh, to, to go through archival documents to look at 19th century accounting books, to reach out to scholars around the country to answer questions that we couldn't get answered in the in the archives themselves, and to really come to discover that Gonzaga's connection to slavery was deep. And at some point today, Sherylana, I'd like to share some of the documents themselves and, and tell you exactly what, what our students found.
0: That would be wonderful, and you know, The power of a question is just so amazing. And I I wish more students would just follow that curiosity because just one question led you to find out the ties between your school and slavery and how connected and intertwined they were. And maybe that question had been on someone's mind before. And they hadn't been brave enough to ask it, or maybe maybe it was a brand new question. But it just all started with a question, and that's amazing.
1: It really is a wonderful part of this story. And it what what I think is really powerful about this is this was student centered research. Uh, you know, a lot of institutions are finding their historical connections to slavery. Many of them are hiring professional uh, historians to do the research. This was done by high school kids. In fact. There was some hesitation on the part of the archives to have high school students go there. They had never had high school students in the archives before to handle these documents in the in the search for that type of truth. And they took a chance on us and uh they're very grateful that they gave us that opportunity. So the research took place over two summers and as well as spring breaks, lots of downtime we used to to do this research. And we we came up with three questions that we hope to answer as we began our research, and I'd like to I'd like to just put those out to the audience. Please do. So, questions we we put forth to ourselves before we even started looking were: Did the Washington Seminary, which was the pre, which was the, the founding name of Gonzaga, did the Washington Seminary? directly or indirectly benefit from enslaved persons or enslaved labor? Was Washington Seminary involved in any way with slave run plantations? And did enslaved persons work at the Washington Seminary? Now, we were able to answer yes to all of those questions, but it took painstaking time and work to find those answers. Now, just as a little background, the the Jesuits were the leading slave owners in Maryland. In fact, we believe they were either the largest or the second largest slave owners in Maryland from the mid 1700s up until the mid 1800s. Wow. They operated five farms that they called which were in effect slave run plantations in southern Maryland, many of them on absolutely stunning property on the Chesapeake, I'm sorry, on the Potomac River. Um, and the Jesuits kept extraordinary detailed accounts of these farms. And those are the first books that we accessed. So we looked, we we were looking, we were looking to find any evidence that there was financial connections. Before we did that, though, we wanted more background. We wanted the boys to understand this history of Jesuit slaveholding. And we the first document that that we asked for was a document that Professor Rothman had showed us at Gonzaga. And he brought he showed us on on a on the screen when he spoke to our school, a document showing the census of 272 enslaved persons that were sold in 1838 by the Jesuits. And it lists the names of every person that was part of this extraordinary sale. Uh, all these folks were, were shipped down to New Orleans. And They brought the document out to us and it was sitting right in front of us. And one of the boys asked, why is this document laminated? And the archivist told us that this document is so meaningful to the descendants that when descendants of those 272 come to DC to try to find the answers to their ancestry, that's the first document they wanna see. And so many descendants had weeped over that document and they identified their family members that they had to laminate it to protect it from deterioration. So the first thing we learned is that we were doing work that went way beyond academic work that we were helping possibly to tell the story of people's families who wanted answers to those. That moment was extraordinary for us. We, we then dumped into the end of the documents and found stunning revelations, including the following. We found a financial document that has this on it. And I'm reading it to you, and I hope you can access this. All of our research is, is was put together in an exhibit called Searching for Truth in the Garden, Gonzaga's History of Slavery. And, and Cheryl-Ann is going to provide you with a link to, to see that. So I'm looking at a document now that says Statement of Finances. And this is money coming in to the Jesuits. It says, credits from Bohemia, $1,500. From Newtown, $700. From St. Indigo's, $1,000. Each of those are Jesuit-run slave plantations. Now, further down on the same page, it says, has been expended since 22 July, 1820 in payment of debt on purchase of ground on which Washington Seminary is built, $1,066.81. So that, that financial document was absolutely stunning to us when we discovered that everything literally from the ground up at Gonzaga was paid for by the profits from slave run plantations. So, Cheryl Ann, if I can move on to probably the most significant part of the research, uh, is that we identified several enslaved people that worked at Gonzaga, and one person in particular was the focus of most of our attention for several reasons. He was the first name we found. His name is Gabriel, and we found out that he was actually the same age as the boys when he was first founded at, at the Washington Seminary. And it came in a simple line in an accounting book amongst payments for assorted things like firewood and chickens, all kinds of random stuff. In that same page, we found this line. The Gabriel for weeding in the garden in time of recreation and it was a payment to him for six cents. And that was the first name we found. We immediately contacted Professor Rothman and asked him to come up to the archives, which he did. And he said, you need to follow this name. You need to keep a close eye on this name. You found something. Uh, He says, there's no question it's an enslaved person. And we did continue to see that name. Gabriel, he received another payment of pennies and another one for pennies. But then we lost track of him that first summer. That's all we had on him that first summer. The second summer, we discovered that Gabriel was actually moved to Georgetown College by a woman named Margaret Fenwick. And he's he's in their accounting books now uh, being rented to Georgetown in return for a discount on, on tuition for one of her children. We then found a document that we thought was gonna turn our story into a story of hope. And like many enslaved people, uh, Gabriel, maybe not many, I I take that back. Like some enslaved people, he was offered an opportunity to to purchase his freedom. And we found a document stating the terms that Gabriel would have to, to, to carry out to earn his freedom. And he had to lease himself out. for $8 a month to another family. And the the accounting books we have showed he did that. And money was starting to come in. But Margaret Fenwick, the owner of Gabriel at that time, dies in in April of 1829. And that, as, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners know, is a traumatic experience for enslaved people because their future is completely in doubt now. And that opportunity for freedom was taken from him because we found shortly after that, in June of 1829, that Gabriel was sold for $450 by a man named James Purvis. who We find out was an agent for the notorious slave trading firm, Franklin and Armfield. We then went on to find the actual bill of sale for this young person Named Gabriel, and it lists his his features: five foot three, his age, twenty one. And this document, which is full of religious language, it's one of the more powerful documents that we found. And I'll, I'll just read you a short part from it. We, the subscribers Anthony McElroy and Joshua Millard, freeholders of the County of Washington and the District of Columbia, do hereby certify. That Negro Gabriel, aged about 21 years of the male sex, about five feet three inches high, a black man of complexion, was purchased in the district, aforesaid, by James R. Franklin from Richard McSherry of Georgetown College. In witness thereof, we have signed this certificate in the city of Washington district, aforesaid, this 20th day of June in the year of our Lord, 1829. And then it goes down to state that. Gabriel is a good character and is no threat to run away. Um, We continued to find out, we wanted desperately to find out what happened to Gabriel after that. And we found out that he was taken to the Franklin and Armfield slave quarters in Alexandria and held there for three months before he was put on a ship, amazingly named the United States, and shipped to New Orleans. We found his name on the ship's manifest, along with dozens of other enslaved people that Franklin and Armfield were sending down to New Orleans uh, during the cotton boom. As many of you know, the domestic slave trade took off in a decade after the end of the transatlantic slave trade. And most of the enslaved people that fed the cotton boom were purchased from the upper South and sold at great profit in the New Orleans market or the Natchez, Mississippi market. The students also found, and this is in the exhibit as well, and this was, this was a document they found working at the, at the Antiquarium Society uh, up at Worcester, Massachusetts, where they hold newspapers from going back to revolutionary times. They found two newspapers that showed the exact date that the United States left Alexandria and the date it arrived. Um, and we found that his arrival was notarized. He was resold there for $700, and that's the end of Gabriel as of today. And we 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 still have not given up hope that we're going to find more about Gabriel. Um, that that in a nutshell, maybe I could pause there, Cheryl Ann. But that, that that's the story of Gabriel, and uh, it, it's a it's an American story, unfortunately, and it's Gondaga's story now. And it, it, this research has changed our school in so many ways as our school has grappled with this, with this, uh, new understanding of its history. That was, that was not known for 197 years. And we're still, we still continue to grapple with it.
0: Let's unpack that just a lot because there was a lot there. Um, first of all, if you could see my face if this was video you would have seen jaw drop after jaw drop after jaw drop because this is an incredible sad history and what did what were the student reactions to finding out that their school was built on slavery from the ground up even before gabriel when they first made that discovery of oh my god our school is based in slavery. What, what did they say? So I think the
1: reactions ran the gamut of shock, anger, disgust to, well, what did you expect to find? That's just the way things were back then. We, we made a concerted effort to share this information with the students. Uh, we had a series of breakout sessions for kids to process this information. And it's become part of the curriculum that I use. And, and I, One of the things that I think helps students deal with this uh, after they read this research and understand it. And th- this has been an amazing, an amazing uh, development. And I want to read you a couple of these. Poetry has been the key to helping students process this and The students are writing poetry after they spend a week in class understanding this history, reading it, and finding out about it. And I'd like to share with you a poem written this year by one of my students, but it speaks to the importance of us knowing this history. This student uses a lot of words taken directly from the research and from the documents, the bill of sale, et cetera. Now, Gonzaga's school colors are purple, just so you know that. So the title of this is, is God Purple cash from Mr. Purvis for Gabe, $450. Money is worth a man's life, Gabriel's life. He obtained leave to buy himself free, a debt in need of pay of free labor forced. Now I must pay to be free of my shackles. Ned is easy to govern. You broke me down. You psychologically tormented me. You abused me. You emasculated me. You dehumanized me. Now I am a tool at your disposal. You get on your knees to pray to God, yet you expect those to get on their knees and praise you. Who the hell do you think you are? The Society of Jesus. Is that how you identify? Let their rations be fixed. Is that how you testify to God? By deciding how much I eat? Gabriel and thousands of other enslaved Americans were forced to pay the toll of American geographic and economic expansion. The United States. A journey to New Orleans filled with rough seeds and lost hope, hope of no longer being persecuted, as the Romans persecuted Jesus, as the French persecuted Joan, as the Egyptians persecuted the Israelites, as Gonzaga persecuted me. Reparations must be paid. Lies must be slayed. The history shall not fade. from So poetry has given our students a way to process this information uh and, and and i think bringing that into the classroom and art is also another way for kids to grapple with this because this is this is not easy this is not easy uh history to to talk about it's not easy history to to, to learn and it's not and it's not easy to when it comes
0: right into your front door how did the community react when your research was published and you started teaching that Gonzaga was built upon slavery. What did they What did they say? Did you get pushback?
1: No, I don't think so. I think I think it was clear that this. I mean, we the research was so meticulously done. There was no question about its authenticity uh, or or its urgency. So I'm fortunate to work at a school that supported this being brought into the classroom, not just by me. Uh, the English department, uh, actually, the first summer, the English department shared this and shared this with their students, and they published a book of poetry. There's a there's a book of poetry in response to this by students. That's just very powerful. Um, you know, I, I I think we still have more to go, though. I I, I really believe that. I, I'd like to see a permanent uh, memorial at school honoring this history and i think we got to keep we, we owe it to gabriel to find out if he has any descendants that's a that's a really important part of this research connecting with descendants last year i invited one of the descendants of the 272 uh to come and speak um and georgetown university has has done quite a bit of work in this area this is a one let me let me go back just one second here charline georgetown in the aftermath of their work trying to come to face their history, decided to offer free tuition to descendants of the 272. And the first person to take it was a woman named Melison Combe short. And she moved into the dorm at Georgetown as a 62-year-old freshman. She had had a long career as a, as a pretty high-level chef in New Orleans. And she came to Georgetown, and she spoke to our school, and she was amazing. So that area is an area that we want. I think we have to focus on. Kind of, many of the descendants of that 272 sale in 1838 have, have live in a community in New Orleans outside of Baton Rouge called Maranguin. So Maranguin is made up of extraordinary number of descendants of the Jesuit 272. Last last year, one of my students who happened to be on a recruiting trip at LSU asked if. He could go visit Maringuen, and I reached out to some descendants down there. And this uh, this student spent a half a day with with a the descendant there and came back with a jar full of soil from what had been the former plantation. So those are the kind of connections I think we have to continue on. Uh, when I when I wrote when I wrote them a thank you note for for hosting my student. I got a simple reply. No, thank you for keeping our descendants stories alive. So it, again, it spoke to the humanity of this work and the unfinishedness of it. We're, we're not done yet. This, this work is not complete. We're at the very beginning, I think, of, of grappling with, with this history.
0: Stories like yours are why I do this podcast. History is human. We're learning about humanity. we're learning about empathy. We're learning about how to relate to each other. And this is just the most incredible story about what history can do for students, for teachers, for the community, for the for the country, for the world. I, I Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Um, do you have any advice for teachers who might want to take on, a local history project like yours who might wanna explore their school's history, where do you think they should start?
1: I think, again, let's let's go back to the student that asked that question. The students have to start asking questions. Uh, many schools have histories that are complicated that have been kept hidden. The other thing I would really recommend is if you live near a university, reach out to, to scholars. That's been one of the most extraordinary parts of this for me, personally. Uh, the exhibit was not done without the help of scholars. Adam Rothman, Joshua Rothman, the University of Alabama, who's who has a book coming out in April on the history of Franklin and Armfield. Uh, worked with a with, with a woman getting her PhD at, at Johns Hopkins named Jenny Williams, who, who helped us locate that, that ship's manifest. Don't be afraid to reach out to scholars. Um, I think that's really important. And, and finally, I would say, find a way to get students into archives, to touch documents, to see them. That that, that part of this experience has been life-changing for me. When we found that page with Gabriel's name on it, uh, that, that changed everything for all of us.
0: So, Ed... If a teacher who's listening to this or someone who is listening to this podcast would like to get in touch with you, how can they best do that?
1: Well, I'm on Twitter at ELDBT. That's that's probably the best way. And a lot of the research is on that Twitter page and uh, got a lot of good history friends that I follow. And that, that would be a great way.
0: And please don't forget, listeners, in the show notes for this week, and also on my blog, you can find um, the link to the uh, to the digital exhibit, so that you can check it out for yourself. And what I I hope that we all learned something today about the humanity of our subject. We are teaching about real people, people who lived and breathed and had warm blood, people who who were hurting, people who were. Who are dying? People who are oppressed, and I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of helping our students feel that. And Ed, I am so honored that you are here talking about how you helped your students really feel the past. I I can't think of I can't think of a better example in a, in a classroom. So thank well, you I, so much for I
1: appreciate it. And I'll just say one final takeaway. There's a lot of talk nationally about history majors are down. Three of those five students, they're sophomores in college now, are history majors now. So this experience lit a fire under them. And so that that's something I'm obviously very,
0: very proud of. Absolutely. You definitely showed them that history matters. Um, so Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank you for joining me and Ed and and finding out all about this amazing project about discovering Gonzaga's ties to slavery. Again, my name is Charlene Amendola. I am your hostess today. And if you would like to get in touch with me between podcasts, you can find me on Twitter at History Her Way, or you can visit me on my website, www.teachinghistoryherway.com. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to the Teaching History Her Way podcast.